the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. As we close out our week in our third hour of our final day, we do so with uh, one of the great people in America, one of my favorite guests, Pete Peterson, and favorite public intellectuals, Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Pete, how are you doing? Happy Friday. And happy Friday to you, Seth. I've, Doing well. Great I, to be with you. Even though I was sending you a few barbs along the way here, I was making, <laughs> I was, I was giving Pete heck, but he had the last laugh. Uh, he proved that in all this, he was the more conservative of us, of the two of us. <laughs> Can I tell the audience <laughs> what, the, course, uh, what the index here was? Of yes, the two of yes. us, of the two of us, Pete does not have a subscription to the New York Times. Bless no, you, Pete. <laughs> Bless you, Pete. That's what we, that's what we discovered with you. Um, but you uh, also uh, have an intellectual wealth that I am jealous of. You had Wilfred McClay at your school yesterday, huh? We sure did, and longtime friend. He was over at the house last night for dinner, and just great to not only have him speak on the importance of the Constitution as a civics education document, but um, also just to spend time with him. He's just such a great person. I can't uh, tell you enough how jealous I am, and I can't communicate <laughs> to the audience how serious uh uh, a point I want to make here when I tell them that uh, if you want uh, if you want uh, a, a good intro entree into teaching in American history uh, to your kids or brushing up on it yourselves, his book Land of Hope: An Invitation to the Great American Story, Wilfred McClay, it's just a gem. Uh, you know, in the preface, Pete, can I do this? Uh, in in his preface, yeah. he uh, almost there's less. Uh, not underlined than there is underlined uh, <laughs> in my copy. A culture yeah. without memory, he writes, will necessarily be barbarous and easily tyrannized, even if it is technologically advanced. The incessant waves of daily events will occupy all our attention and defeat all our efforts to connect past, present, and future, thereby diverting us from the understandings we human beings require, including the paths of our own lives boy we are we are we are pushed through what i sometimes refer to as uh cri- crisis industrial complex here Peter. permanent revolution things just come at us so fast yes, um yes. it's 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 really easy for for students and children to be propagandized uh yes. about this country because there is no context in history um that is being yes. taught to them anymore is that a fair is that a fair assessment no that's right and of course the importance of history and providing those precedents for different eras and things that we're going through. Of course, things change, conditions change, new inventions change the world that we live in, but we are still human beings, and I like very much what you said about that near-catastrophic uh, culture or yeah. apocalyptic culture yeah. that we find ourselves in. And so much of that, I really do believe, is driven by a lack of real historical awareness. Right. Uh, Right. You know, believing that we're living through 
utterly unique times, which, of course, is never the case. And and it's always the worst of times, isn't it? It's always yeah. the end of the world as we know it. It's always the eve of destruction. I found this interesting. Did you and I discuss this? Maybe we did, but if we did, it was so long ago, it's worth redoing maybe. I don't know if you noticed this, but in, in, your, in your world, and obviously in Southern California, it's a little different than what we had here, but Pete, during – during the COVID experience uh, over the last two years, odd thing to me, though by statistic and fact, the elderly were the most vulnerable to COVID, to succumbing to COVID if they got it, you know, I yep. found that they were also the most, uh, how do I want to put the stoic about it, relaxed about it, the least panicked about it, shall I say? Yes. Maybe because yep. they had a little history in their lives. Maybe they had a little yep. context. Is, is that fair? I I, and did you notice fair. that, by you the know, way? I'm curious about, to know if you noticed that, too. No, I, I do. I mean, I, I think, you know, you read through, and we've talked about Neil Ferguson's book, yeah. uh, Doom, yeah. before. Yeah. Uh, you know, that really is is several chapters are just focused on the history of pandemics, mm-hmm. uh, the mm-hmm. global history of pandemics. And you can't read uh, those chapters without getting a sense and a grounding in the fact that while, you know, you don't frame these in terms of this is a once a century type thing, or you, I mean, you, without reference to the pacing, right. at least understanding that this has been something that's occurred throughout human history um, does produce a certain stoicism. I like the way you put that. Yeah, yeah a, a certain, um, a certain absence of panic that a lot of the younger generations went through. I mean, it wasn't with everyone, but I noticed, I mean, it was odd. The 75-plus community, the 70-plus community that I was talking to, they were yeah. out and about. They were not doing the mask thing. They were much, yeah, yeah stoic would be, I guess, the right word. They, just much oh, more course, so that, than the 30s group, and 40-year-olds, yeah. Right. Well, and that age group, of course, lived through polio, well, lived, right, lived through right. the pandemic of the early 50s. Um, Cuban Missile know, Crisis. That's right. I mean, those those are just uh, these are people that have gone through these major crises in the past. And, and other histrionics, right? The end of the world right. was going to be the population bomb. The end of the world that's was right. going to be nuclear winter. The end of the world was going right. to be the environment. And they just lived through it. And yeah. Anyway, I yeah. There, there's some there's something to be said for that. But we are put through it. And um, I, I you know I I I don't know I I. I I, this is the first show in probably three weeks that I really haven't mentioned Ukraine, and yeah. uh, I, I'm kind of I'm kind of marveling at uh, how many things are going on, and I'm kind of thinking maybe starting next week it won't be 24/7. I don't mean to uh, diminish the massive importance of what's going on there. I just marvel at how how it's a 24/7 story without Can much more. I mean, we pretty much know what what we know. Yeah. No, that's right. I mean, just taking just taking a step back to Please. see what have we learned anew about the crisis, even in the last few days, right. that news coverage should be dedicated 24-7 to it. Yeah. And if you've had the experience of checking in and out of your favorite news network to see the same exact yeah. video package yeah. Yeah. replayed, yeah. <laughs> you realize that... Uh, we're not uh, we're not breaking news here so much as just regurgitating it. And that was true of COVID. I um, yeah. I was kind of doing an accountability interview with uh, I'm sure a mutual friend of ours, Heather MacDonald. Um, ah. 
And uh, a few weeks ago, Bill, right, when she was on, she said something because I wanted to – she was really the first public intellectual to come out with a piece that was saying relax, folks. And it was was in March, late March of 2020. Uh, And uh, she said everything we needed to know about COVID that we know now we knew then. I thought that was an interesting statement. And that kind of goes to what you're saying too a little bit, doesn't it? It does. And again, the thinking of – the rehashing of yeah. information that's yeah. been said. Now, you know, the networks would argue that, you know, their audiences are checking in, you know, once a day and yeah. so they have to keep. But, of course, what that does is it removes really any context for any other world events that are happening. Mm-hmm. So if you believe the 24 hours are just 48 unique 30-minute, uh, you know, opportunities to inform, mm-hmm. That really does change the way that you report the news and, and put things in the global context that's that's so necessary to remove this um, apocalyptic view of events. I'm glad you used the word apocalyptic because, you know, there is – I mean, I, I think I know what's coming next. I, I was making this observation. I may be wrong about it. But it seemed up until roughly the election in Virginia (laughs) that uh, our domestic policy concerns and debates had to do with issues having to do with race. And uh, it seems like since about then, the progressive push has changed a little bit. And now it's about you've seen it. It's now gender fluidity. Have you noticed that, too? You know, it uh, it very much has changed. Uh, the discussion of what's possible. And at the same time, I, I do see an increasing reticence mm-hmm. on the part of the media mm-hmm. um, to pull out some of the issues that were so dominant. Mm-hmm. Certainly, we've seen that in COVID, mm-hmm. right? You um, bet. You know, the, the fact that our governor out here in California really made an about face with not a significant change in data or cases um, really does speak to the awareness uh, that what's changed really is the political environment. You bet. Uh, you bet. Let me let me take a quick break here with you, Pete, and we'll come back on the other side. We have so much to discuss. Uh, did the New York right. Times get religion on free speech? I'm not so sure. We'll see. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. When I lambast our institutions of higher education. Uh, I'm accepting Pepperdine because it is the answer and the solution to all that other stuff we talk about all the time, thanks to the great leadership of that school at the helm of which stands Pete Peterson. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Pete Peterson from the Pepperdine School of Public Policy is our guest. He puts some great stuff out on Twitter, too. Pete4CA is his uh, Twitter handle, the number four, Pete, the number four CA. Pete, there's, uh, there's uh, with everything else going on, there's some interesting stuff happening, slightly interesting, and it may not last, at the New York Times with regard to the importance of free speech. They had a big editorial unsigned today on it. But before that, about a week ago, they had a student from UVA, Emma Camp is her name, talking mm-hmm. about, uh, what she found, well, the title is, I came to college eager to debate, I found self-censorship instead. She says, is it brave to risk your social standing by saying something unpopular? Yes. 
Is it reasonable to ask college students to solve this problem independently? No. We thought this was an uh, undergrad problem, uh, but then, of course, we saw what happened at the Yale Law School uh, this week as well. Uh, talk to me about about what Emma Camp is saying at UVA, and talk to me about the experience that you drew, or the, uh, the the insights you drew from what she was writing about. Well, of course, she's a, as you say, a, a senior at UVA, and it's a school that is not particularly known for being utterly left wing. Right. Um, but describing her experiences over the course of four years. Um, very much connected to the other conversations that we've had about self-censorship. Uh-huh. Uh, in fact, in, she quotes a, a, a national survey at which the pullout from UVA was that 57%, almost two-thirds of the students at UVA surveyed felt either uncomfortable or very uncomfortable with expressing their views on controversial topics during classroom discussions. Uh-huh. And that's the thing I, I really want to I keep coming back to in our discussion, Seth, because when I speak to donor groups and adult uh, older audiences, so much of the discussion when it comes to free speech on campus is around speakers, right? You mm-hmm. know, can we get Ben Shapiro on? Can yeah. we get you know other speakers on? But there's a really there's a much larger issue at play here, and this is what goes on inside the classroom when students feel that either because of the the cultural milieu that they're in, or directly from their professor, they feel they have to squelch what they say or what they write about or how they write about particular topics. And that is a subject matter, yeah. this this issue of viewpoint diversity within your education um, that really is one that we we have to focus on if we're going to have any hope of saving higher education. How hard is it? I mean, after all, really, how hard is it? One of the most, I mean, really seriously conservative people I know is, uh, and maybe you too, I know you know him, I don't know if he's one of the most conservative people, but one of the most conservative people and thoughtful uh, and great public intellectual is Robert George, Robbie George over at Princeton. Oh, yeah. And um, he says, and I've talked to students of his, so I know he's telling the truth, he says in his classes, students don't know his politics. They don't know his politics. I mean, if they ask, he'll be honest with them. But, you know, he takes them through vital vital conversations without putting his fingers on the scale. So I'm wondering how, A, how hard it is. But, you know, maybe his mission is different from most administrators and teachers. Maybe his mission is to actually use the word educate and not indoctrinate. Right. And and, uh, Dr. George, who actually happens to be our Reagan visiting professor here at the oh, Paul of course School. he does. Um, <laughs> you just keep doing this to me, Pete. Of course he does. But you want so me to eloquent. move to? Do you want me to move to Malibu? You're going to get me to move to Malibu. I don't know if I can afford it, but okay. well, uh, you're always welcome. Thank you, you know sir. That. Thank you. Um, but the, the, this question of teaching people uh, how to think and not what to think yeah. is really foundational here at the Policy School, and essentially what you've described that uh, is Dr. George's ethos in the classroom. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, uh, many faculty, and certainly we have reams of public uh, of survey data to show this, uh, come into the classroom highly ideological to start with and see it as part of their mission in teaching to really very much put their finger on the scale mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. to teach people what to think and not 
how to think. And when these stories break out like this story written by a student right. in the New York Times right. about her experiences and a self-described liberal, right. um, not to mention what she saw about what her conservative classmates had to put up with. Right. Right. Um, these are the things that, again, I, I think are are the, the types of um, mind-shaping experiences uh, that do not prepare us well for a public square where we are able to receive and engage with opinions that we disagree with. And as Andrew Sullivan, that, that article that he wrote, for uh, New York Magazine three or four years ago, we all live on campus now. Right. That environment has not stayed on the college campus. That's right. This inability to engage with people who disagree with you, uh, that that manner of engagement begins on college campuses. That's right. And that other New York Times editorial, the one today, gets into some of that, and it asks, yep. it cites some polling on, have you had to hold your tongue? This is non-college students. Well, it's everyone, yep. and they break it down by age. Have you had to hold your tongue? Have you been retaliated against for something you said? And, you know, by party, it's it's very clear. The people who have had to hold their tongue, it's clearly much more on the Republican side than on the Democrat side. But it doesn't matter for the purposes of understanding normative absolutes. We either believe in free thought in an open society or we don't. Right. And, yeah, I, th- I think it is trained up. To really now, I mean, yes, certainly in our colleges and universities, but I even think – I think now even much younger ages are are, get, are getting the message too. Much, much kids in much younger young, younger grades, of course. We're seeing these high schools know high how to school. feed a college, don't they? They know what the college that's is right. Want, right. No, that's right. And I would say there is a flip side to it. Which, whenever I speak on this, I usually quote a panel uh, a comment from a panelist uh, for an event we hosted up in the Bay Area several years ago with Michael McConnell, uh-huh. uh, professor. former judge. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's right, professor at Stanford Law School. And he said in the midst of this conversation around the lack of of viewpoint diversity on college campuses, he said, my conservative students are getting a much better legal education at Stanford Law than my progressive students. Yep. Because they're having to stand and deliver every single day in every single class. Yep. And to say that about Stanford Law. Yep. If I were the parent of a kid who's progressive and going to Stanford Law – I would really, you know, that would really get under my skin, but it is so true. It's you know, true, that, and I would wed it to what took place at Yale, where the police had to be called because of the disruption of a seminar on a debate, right. a debate on <laughs> free speech. Yeah. Free speech, yeah. That's hey, right. uh, and we see it at Harvard, too. And I mean, yes. <laughs> yeah. go oh, ahead. No, there, there was a great Harvard Crimson piece where they interviewed uh, conservative students earlier this year, and... It, it really is about the, the skills that you learn in minority and can serve you for the rest of your life. You but at the same time, the progressive students really are not getting a quality education you because bet. they're not getting challenged. Uh, Jonathan Rausch, do we call him a mutual friend, too? Are you are you too, yeah. John? Too? Yeah. <laughs> OK, so he I'll close with this. I know you had an abbreviated schedule today, but I'll close with this. He suggested a uh, statement in every student handbook that reads this way. Warning. Although the university values and encourages civil expression and respectful personal behavior, you may at any moment without further notice encounter ideas, expressions, and images that are mistaken, upsetting, dangerous, prejudiced, insulting, or deeply offensive, and we call this education. Pretty good, huh? 
Very good. Excellent. Pete Peterson, uh, we'll talk soon, but thank you for everything you are and do, my friend. Great to be with you, Seth. Thanks, Pete. Godspeed. I'm Seth, 602-5080-960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960, coming to you live from the Guns Etc. Studios. Two things I want to hammer home, uh, one on the Leah Thomas, uh, you call it victory? Yeah, I guess you do. It is a victory uh, for their movement and for, for her, uh, and it's absurd. What was the um, what was the Olympic ice skating scandal I want to say circa maybe 94 or was it 04? For some reason, the number four sticks in my head. Was it 04? No, 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 no. It was a little later where there was interference with the judges. They bought off one of the judges. I think the Russians did. And they ended up not taking the gold medal away from the Russian team, but also giving another one to the Canadian team once they discovered I think I think the runner up here deserves a gold medal because I you know she swam she a girl swam and came in second to Leah Thomas in the uh, NCAA uh, meet yesterday they ought to give her a first prize uh, first uh, place trophy as well uh, the audio I want to play is this Virginia Tech swimmer uh, I played it yesterday I think it's um so courageous, given what college students have to put up with, what Pete was saying about how many of them have to hold their tongues. I just think it's so darn courageous what this uh, VA Tech swimmer said to a reporter yesterday. It's worth replaying again. Man, I, I, God bless her. Tech swimmer, what did you think about Leah Thomas competing today as a swimmer in this competition? Um, what are you feeling? What are other athletes feeling? It's a common conception that we are all very disappointed and frustrated with someone who is has capabilities more than us women have to be able to compete at this level and take opportunities away from other women. Like I have a teammate who did not make finals today because she was just bumped out of finals. And it's heartbreaking to see someone who went through puberty as a male and has the body of a male be able to absolutely blow away the competition. And you go into it with a mindset that you are, you don't have a chance if that makes sense. Like it's hard to compete against someone with, the aerobic capacity, the muscle development, the body of a man, it, it's hard. It's hard to think about it like that. And staying positive, I bet, for other swimmers who are in that uh, heat is probably overwhelming. I, I'm not sure. I can't speak for them. But it, it's disappointing to see and frustrating, definitely. And you said that one of your teammates was crying today because she didn't make the finals. Uh, you said that she was 17th yes. and there were 16 spots. Yes. So uh, Leah Thomas took one of those spots. Uh, talk to us about what your teammate uh, was going through and, and that experience. She was very emotional and it's hard to see because it's her last NCAAs. And um, she really loves that race. And it was just heartbreaking to see that she put all her effort into it today. And when the best time that she's went in a morning session before and still not make it back. It's hard to see someone who works every day, every night, still not be able to compete against someone like that. You know, um, I just have my hats off to that uh, to that young student at Virginia Tech, that uh, young swimmer, showing more courage than uh, most adults, certainly than uh, the adults, well, the children in adults' bodies over at ESPN 
whose big job today they think is to do a walkout in protest of the Florida law that doesn't treat transgenderism as an appropriate pedagogical tool for five-year-olds. That's what they're mad about at ESPN. So they're going to walk out and protest. Boy, they'll teach Florida. Because they say in Florida they're targeting the transgender because they won't allow it being taught to five-year-olds. Can you believe that? Yeah, believe it. Believe it. That's the world we're in now. There's another thing that's important that we not lose sight of here, and it has to do with the Hunter uh, Biden laptop story in the New York Times. Uh, I'm running out of time in this segment to do it. I did a little bit of this yesterday, but I, I haven't heard other people doing this much. And it's a take that I think is really important for us to grab, to grasp. Uh, I think it's I think it's supremely important that we understand the enormity of what social media did for all the talk of Facebook and social media turning the 2016 election with no evidence that it changed a single vote and really no evidence that it was happening at any kind of scale other than a scale that was being promoted by the Hillary Clinton campaign, paid for and bought by the Hillary Clinton campaign. This one, what was done to the New York Post on the Hunter Biden laptop story did actually change an election. And I'll tell you about that when we come back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, portions of Rich brought to you by our dear friends at Balance of Nature, balanceofnature.com. Dear because they help sponsor this kind of communication and uh, this kind of learning and uh, this kind of commitment to, to not only free speech but uh, also our position. Uh, they're not afraid of it. Uh, I don't know their politics, but I know they're not afraid of it. They put out a great product. I take it every day, have been for three years. It's kept me well for three years. Uh, just think of uh, the, what's in their veggies. Did you eat enough veggies today? Did you eat broccoli, spinach, soybean, green cabbage, wheatgrass, kale, cauliflower, white onion, zucchini, garlic? Uh, did you eat carrots? Did you eat cayenne peppers? How about wheatgrass and shiitake mushrooms? You get that and more in just the veggie blend in their fruits and veggies. I haven't done the fruits part yet. But to maintain, protect, and repair your health while boosting your immu- immunity, there is nothing better than balance of nature. It is all natural, 100%. Not 99.9 like the old ivory soap or the Ronnie Millsap song. 100% all natural and third-party tested. I take it every day, once a day. Balanceofnature.com. They're fruits and veggies. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Discount code BALANCE. Wanted to mention the angle of this Hunter Biden story that I think is important. And people are talking a little bit about it, but not enough. Not enough. It's one thing to say that the New York Post was vindicated. It's one thing to say that the Biden team and the Democrats and the left or just the Democrats, um, you know, pulled a fast one on everyone. It had severe consequences, severe consequences consequences. Let me play you just this little audio real quickly, because it wasn't just James Clapper and it wasn't just Leon Panetta and it wasn't just Twitter and Facebook and 48 other intelligence officials that and CNN and MSNBC. It was the candidate for the presidency of the United States who is now the president of the United States when Donald Trump in the debate with Joe Biden brought this Hunter Biden scandal up. This is what you got. And then I'm going to tell you what it meant. 
50 former national intelligence folks who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plan. You mean the laptop is now another Russia, Russia, Russia hoax? The vast majority of the intelligence people have come out and said there's no basis at all. The allegations against Joe and Hunter Biden have no basis in fact. Who do you think is behind this? Well, the Russians would be my number one guess. Obviously, Russia would be the chief suspect. This information Rudy Giuliani is peddling uh, very well could be connected to some sort of Russian government disinformation campaign. CBS News has learned the FBI is now looking into whether the information found on the device may be part of a Russian disinformation campaign. There are fears that what Giuliani is now... You get the point. I could go on and on. Did it matter? You bet it did. The Media Research Center did a poll, an exit poll of voters in the 2020 election. Almost 50 percent of Biden's voters, almost 50 percent of people who voted for Joe Biden were unaware of the laptop story. Why would they be aware of it? They don't listen to shows like this and they may get their news from Facebook and Twitter, which banned the story and shut down the New York Post. And we're told by everyone else from Joe Biden, to CNN, to all these 50 former intelligence officials, quotes in intelligence, intelligence officials, that it was a Russian disinformation campaign. Guess what? Awareness of the Hunter Biden scandal would have led 9.4 percent of Biden voters to abandon the Democratic candidate. That is to say, nine and a half percent of Biden voters wouldn't have voted for Joe Biden for president if they knew the story. Guess what? That would have flipped six of the swing states that Biden won over to Donald Trump, giving Donald Trump 311 electoral votes and the presidency. It changed an election. It changed an election. And the data shows it, as does the history. All kinds of stories about obvious election interference and irregularities. The organization, the institution that did it more than anything else in a concerted, collaborative, collusive effort was your corporate media, was your corporate media. They changed an election. You're telling me they don't need regulation. You're telling me we don't need to look again at the Communications Decency Act under which they operate freely to do this sort of stuff. Of course we do. There is no greater interference with elections than comes from corporate media and social media. It's all corporate. It's all corporate. They did it. They got away with it. And only yesterday, the New York Times can write this paragraph. People familiar with the investigation said prosecutors have examined emails between uh, Hunter Biden, colleague Mr. Archer and others about Burisma and other foreign business activity. Those emails were obtained by the New York Times from a cache of files that appears to have come from a laptop abandoned by Mr. Biden in a Delaware repair shop. The emails and other documents in the cache were authenticated by people familiar with them and with the investigations. Authenticated. Authenticated. Guess what? The New York Post authenticated it before the election. Before the election. Do you think we will have Republican senators or ex-presidents other than Donald Trump talking about the illegitimacy of Joe Biden's presidency 
the way Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton and Jimmy Carter spoke about the illegitimacy of Donald Trump's presidency? Do you think that presidency might have been a little different if it wasn't subject to the question of legitimacy that kept being propounded by Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, Jimmy Carter, and pretty much the entirety of the Democratic Party and corporate media? Do you think maybe those four years would have been a little bit different? You think Ukraine might be a little bit more defended because fingers were burned when Donald Trump deigned to call the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, to talk to him about giving him arms and also investigating, if he could, the things that we could not investigate here having to do with corruption? Do you think that defense of Ukraine might have been a little bit different? And do you think maybe we deserve the transcript of the two-hour call between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden that transpired today? Two-hour call between those two. No transcript to be found. You think maybe we deserve that? Questions. Questions. Evidence that demands a judgment and a verdict. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon, some of your week with us. It really means a ton to us. It does. Um, as does, by the way, on, on a show where I said maybe a few things that uh, are a little more controversial than most, I, it just means a ton to me that I have a boss and a corporation here that uh, has never once told me what I can and cannot say. So to Jim and my team at Salem, I just it's, it's a pleasure to operate in that world, and I don't take that for granted either, and I hope you don't either in the audience. I'll end by quoting um, – I'll end by quoting someone who I would agree with on almost nothing. She defines herself as left of left of center. Her name is Jennifer Say. We've talked about her before. She was uh, vice president at Levi Strauss and thrown out of Levi Strauss for demanding or not demanding, but for activating being an activist on opening the schools in San Francisco during covid. Uh, She posted this today. The entirety of my politics at the moment can be summarized as leave kids alone. Stop badgering them and birding them burdening them with weight not theirs to carry. Let them go to school and live in the world without onerous, absurd restrictions. Let them read what they want, hang out with each other, play sports, socialize, and have fun. Doesn't mean adults don't support, guide them, and help them. They need our help. Doesn't mean to let them engage in reckless behaviors that are harmful. I'm not suggesting young people go on drinking binges and benders. But let's just mostly leave the kids alone and focus our policy and parenting efforts on helping them reacclimate to life, to school, to closing the alarming academic gaps and the mental health crises that we have foisted on them. This will be a collective societal effort. A generation is at risk, if not lost already. Yep, I agree with everything that left of left of center, Jennifer Say says. I also have a feeling that in a year or so, She won't be describing herself as left of left of center. She was mugged by reality. God bless you all. Until Monday, I'm Seth Liebson, and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.